Chapter Ten of Lover or Friend by Rosa Carey. Priscilla Baxter. How many people are busy in this world in gathering together a handful of thorns to sit upon? Jeremy Taylor. Audrey never forgot the day when she first heard this sad story. It was on a winter's afternoon, and she and Mr. O'Brien were alone in the cottage. She remembered how the setting sun threw ruddy streaks across the snow, and how the light of the fire, beside which they sat later on in the twilight, illumined the low room and flashed out on the privet hedge, now a mass of sparkling icicles. She and Geraldine had driven into Braille, and by and by the carriage was coming back to fetch her. They had been talking of Matt, and Mr. O'Brien had shown her some of his letters, and then all at once his face had grown very white and troubled, and in a few husky sentences he had told her the rest of the story. And as Audrey listened, there was a gleam of a teardrop on her long lashes. "'But you went to see him? Surely you went to see him?' she asked tremulously, as he came to a sudden pause. But he shook his grey head very sorrowfully. "'I would have gone, I willingly, when my anger had burnt out a bit. I just hungered to see the poor lad. He was still a lad to me, and to shake him by the hand.' For all he had done, he was still mad, you see, but he would not let me. He begged and prayed of me not to come. Ah, that was cruel. Nay, he meant no unkindness, but he was pretty nearly crazed, poor chap. I have the letter now that he wrote to me. The chaplain sent it. But no eye but mine must ever see it. I have written it down in my will that it is to be buried with me. Don't come unless you wish me to do something desperate, Tom. I think if I saw your honest face in my cell, I should just make away with myself. No, no, dear old chap, let me dream I weird, as Susan used to say. I have shamed you all, and my heart is broken. Try to forget that you ever had a brother, Matt. Eh, they were desperate words for a man to write, but I do not doubt that he meant them. Did he mention his wife and children? No, never a word of them. I wrote to him more than once, but he never answered me. He was such a long way off, you see. They send them to Dartmoor now. As far as I know, Matt may be dead and buried. Well, it is hard lines, and I have known a peck of troubles in my time. There, you know it all, Miss Ross. It beats me why I've told you, for no one in the world knows it but Prissy. You have drawn it out of me somehow. You've got a hearty way with you that reminds me of my Susan, and I never had but that one secret from her, and I sent Matt the two five-pound notes. Your story is safe with me, my dear old friend, returned Audrey, laying a hand on his arm. You must never regret telling me. I've heard so many sad histories. People always tell me their troubles. They know they can trust me. I'm fond of talking, went on Audrey in her earnest way. But I've never betrayed a person's confidence. I've never once repeated anything that my friends have told me. Their troubles are as sacred to me as my own would be. I'm bound to believe you, returned Mr. O'Brien, looking thoughtfully at the girlish face and steadfast eyes. Prissy says it always gives her a comfortable feeling to talk out her troubles to you. It is a gift, I am thinking, but you are young to have it. Did I ever tell you, Miss Ross, what Susan said to me when she was dying? No, I am sure you never told me that. Well, Prissy had gone to lie down, and I was alone with Susan. It was the room above us where she died. I was sitting by the fire, thinking she was having a fine sleep, and would surely be better for it, when she suddenly spoke my name. Tom, she said, I know just what you're thinking about. You've got Matt on your mind. Well, I could not deny that, 
and Susan was always so sharp in finding me out, and then she begged me to sit by her a bit. For you are very low about everything, dear Tom, she went on. You've got to lose me, and this pretty poor girl, with her bad husband, and when you have nothing better to think about, Matt. I wish you were back in the shop, when I could see you looking at the fire in that way. I was only wondering whether I should ever see the poor lad again, I returned with a sigh. That was all my thought, Susan. I am sure you will see him again, she replied very earnestly, with a kind of solemnity in her voice. I don't know why I think so, Tom, but they say the dying are very clear-sighted, and it is strong upon me that Matt will one day seek you out. Now wasn't that strange, Miss Ross? No, replied Audrey. She may have spoken the truth. While there is life, there is hope. Do not be disheartened, my dear friend. You have had great troubles, but God has helped you to bear them, and you are not without your blessings. That's true, he returned, looking round him. I would sooner live in this cottage than in a palace. I don't believe, as the captain says, there is a prettier place anywhere. I like to think Susan lies so near me, in Braille churchyard, and that by and by I lie beside her, and if I could only see my girl more cheerful. Oh, you must give her time to live down her worries. There, I hear the carriage. And Audrey went in search of her fur-lined cloak. This conversation had taken place about eighteen months ago, and though Audrey had never alluded to it of her own accord, it touched her greatly to notice how, when he was alone with her, Mr. O'Brien would drop a few words which showed how clearly he remembered it. There is no one else to whom I can speak of Matt, he said one day. Prissy never cared much about him. I think she dislikes the subject. As sure as ever I mention Matt, she cries and begins to talk of Joe. Audrey was not at all surprised when Mr. O'Brien made that allusion, as she was stroking the tortoise-shell cat in the sunshine. She could hear Mrs. Baxter laying the tea-things in the other parlour, where they generally sat, and the smell of the hot cakes and fragrant new bread reached them. The cuckoo's note was distinctly audible in the distance. A brown bee had buried himself in the calyx of one of the lilies, and some white butterflies were skimming over the flower-beds. The sweet stillness of the summer afternoon seemed to lull her into a reverie. How impossible it was to realize sin and sorrow and broken hearts and the great hungry needs of humanity, when the sky was so blue and cloudless, and the insects were humming in the fullness of their tiny joy. Will sorrow ever come to me? thought the girl dreamily. Of course, I know it must some day, but it seems so strange to think of a time when I shall be no longer young and strong and full of joy. And then a wave of pity swept over her soft heart as she noticed the wrinkles in her old friend's face. I wish Mrs. Baxter were more cheerful, she said inwardly. She has depressed him, and he has been missing me all these weeks. Audrey tried to be very good to him as they sat together for the next half hour. She told him the Rutherford news, and then asked him all manner of questions. Audrey was a hypocrite in her innocent fashion. She could not really have been so anxious to know how the strawberries and peas were doing in the little kitchen garden behind the cottage, and if the speckled hen were sitting, or if Hannah, the new girl, were likely to satisfy Mrs. Baxter. And yet all these questions were put, as though everything depended on the answers. For you know, Mr. O'Brien, she went on very seriously, Ralph declares that he shall have very little fruit this season. Those tiresome winds have stripped the apple trees, and for some reason or other we have never had such a poor show of gooseberries. The potatoes are doing finely, though, returned Mr. O'Brien, who had risen to the bait. After tea, 
I hope you'll walk round the garden with me, ma'am, and you'll be surprised to see the way some of the things have improved. Tea is ready, father, observed Mrs. Baxter at this point. Miss Ross, will you take that chair by the window? You'll feel the air there. I'm going to ask a blessing, father. For what we are going to receive, the Lord make us truly thankful. Yes, Miss Ross, those are your favourite scones, and Hannah is baking some more. There's plum preserve and lemon marmalade and homemade seed cake. And Mrs. Baxter pressed one viand after another upon her guest, before she could turn her attention to the teapot, which was at present enveloped in a huge braided cosy. Dear me, I shall never be able to eat my dinner, Mrs. Baxter, and then Mother will be miserable. You have no idea the fuss she makes if I ever say I am not hungry. She's perfectly right, Miss Ross, was the mournful answer. There's no blessing to equal good health, and health mainly depends on appetite. Where would Father and I have been if we had not kept our health? It is a wonderful blessing, is it not, Father, that I have been so strong, or I should have sunk long ago. But as poor dear mother used to say, there is no blessing like a good constitution. Everyone has his or her style of conversation, just as all authors have their own peculiar style of writing. Mrs. Baxter, for example, delighted in iteration. She had a habit of taking a particular word and working it to death. Michael was the first person to notice this little peculiarity. After his first visit to Vineyard Cottage, as he was driving Audrey home in the dog-cart, he said to her, Did you notice how often Mrs. Baxter used the same word? I'm sure she said trouble fifty times if she said it once. She is not a bad-looking young woman, but she is a painfully monotonous talker. I should say she is totally devoid of originality. I know nothing about health, Mrs. Baxter, returned Audrey with aggressive cheerfulness. I am always so well, you see. I never had the doctor in my life, except when I had the measles. And the whooping cough, Miss Ross. Don't say you have not had the whooping cough. Oh, yes, when I was a baby, but I hope you don't expect me to remember that. I'm glad to hear it, I'm sure, for you have given me quite a turn. There is nothing worse than having the whooping cough late in life. It is quite ruinous to the Constitution. You know that, don't you, Father? For Great Aunt Saunders never got rid of it, winter and summer. She had a good Constitution, too, never ailed much, and brought up a large family, though most of them died before her. They had not her constitution, had they, father? Great-aunt Saunders was a stout-built sort of woman. With all her good constitution and regular living, she never got rid of the whooping cough. Shall I give you a slice of this excellent cake? asked Audrey politely, and with a laudable desire to hear no more of Great-aunt Saunders' good constitution, and to change the subject, she begged for a recipe of the seed-cake for her mother. Mrs. Baxter looked almost happy as she gave it. She was an excellent cook, and her light hand for cakes and pastry, her delicious scones and crisp shortcake, must have been remembered with regret by the recusant Joe, and may have had something to do with his anxious claims. Mrs. Baxter forgot her beloved iteration, her monotonous voice, roused into positive animation as she verbally weighed out quantities. A great deal depends on the oven, Miss Ross, as I tell Hannah. Many and many a well-mixed cake has been spoiled by the baking. You may use the best of materials, but if the oven is over-hot, and so on, to all of which Audrey listened, with that pleased air of intelligent interest which once made Michael call her the most consummate little hypocrite on the face of the earth. For you are not a bit interested in listening to old Dr. Sullivan's account of those beetles, he said on that occasion. You know nothing about beetles, Audrey. I saw you once yawning behind your hand, which is positively rude, 
and yet there you were making big eyes at the dear old man and hanging on his words as though they were diamonds and pearls. You are too hard on me, Michael, returned Audrey, who was a little hurt at this accusation. She rarely quarrelled with Michael, but now and then his keen man's wit was too much for her. I was very much interested in what Dr. Sullivan was saying, although I certainly did not understand the habits of beetles any more than I understand the Greek literature about which you were pleased to talk to me, in a pointed tone. And if I yawned, speaking still in an injured voice, it was because I'd been up half the night with poor little Patience Atkinson, and I don't like you to call me a hypocrite when I only meant to be kind, finished Audrey, defending herself bravely, in spite of an inward qualm that told her that perhaps Michael was right. Michael looked at her with one of his rare smiles. He saw the girl was a little sore. My dear, he said, taking her hand, don't be vexed with me. You know we always speak the truth to each other. You must not mind my little joke. After all, your friends love you the better for your innocent hypocrisy. We all pretend a little. Conventionality demands it. Which of us would have the courage to say to any man, My good friend, do hold your tongue. You are simply boring me with these everlasting stories. But Michael, persisted Audrey, for she wanted to make this thing very clear to herself as was to him. I think you are wrong in one thing. I am really very seldom bored, as you call it. Even if I do not understand things, if they are not particularly interesting, it pleases me to listen to people. Old Dr. Sullivan did look so happy with that row of nasty little beetles before him that I was quite pleased to watch him. You know people always talk so well on a subject that interests them. I know one thing, that there are very few people in the world so amiable as a certain young lady of my acquaintance. The world would be a better place to live in if there were more like her. But here he checked himself, for he had long ago learnt the useful lesson that speech is sylvan and silence is golden, and that overmuch praise seldom benefited anyone. When tea was over, Audrey accompanied Mr. O'Brien round his small domain, while he proudly commented on the flourishing state of his fruit and vegetables. Before she left the cottage, she contrived to exchange a few words with Mrs. Baxter, who had remained in the house, and whom she found in the tiny kitchen, washing up the best cups and saucers. "'Girls are mostly careless, Miss Ross,' she explained in an apologetic manner. "'And Hannah is no better than the rest, so I always wash up Mother's china myself. It would worry me more than I am already if a cup were to be broken.' "'I'm so sorry to hear your husband has been troubling you again, Mrs. Baxter.' "'Yes, indeed, Miss Ross.' and it is crying shame for Joe to persecute me as he does. Sometimes I feel I must just run away and hide myself. His visits put me into such a nervous state. It is so bad for father, too. He is not as young as he used to be, and since mother's death there has been a great change in him. Last time Joe came he put himself out terribly and was for taking the stick to him. I was all in a tremble. I was indeed, Miss Ross, for Joe had been drinking, and father's a powerful man, and there might have been mischief. I think your husband must be made to understand that he is to leave you alone. Oh, you don't know what men are, Miss Ross. They are over-fond of their own way. Joe does not find things comfortable with me, and then he is always so greedy for money. The ways of providence are very dark and mysterious. When I married Joe, I expected as much happiness as other women. He was so pleasant-spoken, had such a way with him, that even father and mother were deceived in him. He never took anything but his tankard of home-brewed ale at our place, and he was so trim and so well set up that all the girls were envying me. But the day I wore my grey silk dress to go with him to church was the most unfortunate day of my life. Mother would far better have laid me in my shroud, finished Mrs. Baxter, with a homely tragedy that was impressive enough in its own way. 
Oh, you must not say that, returned Audrey hastily. Life will not always be so hard, I hope. And then she shook hands with the poor woman. Audrey enjoyed her walk back. It was a delicious evening, and the birds were singing from every break and hedgerow. Once or twice she heard the harsh call of the concrete mingled with the flute-like notes of the thrush. A lark was caroling high up in the blue sky. By and by she heard him descend. Audrey walked swiftly down the long grass lanes, and as she neared Rutherford she could see a dim man's figure in the distance. Of course it was Michael coming to meet her, attended by his faithful booty. Audrey smiled and quickened her pace. She was quite used to these small attentions, this brotherly surveillance on Michael's part. She was never surprised to find him at some unexpected point, waiting patiently for her. Am I late? she asked hastily, as he rose from the stile and slipped his book in his pocket. I have had such a nice afternoon. They were so pleased to see me, and made so much of me. Then, with a quick change of tone, You have walked too far to meet me, Michael. You are looking paler than usual this evening. Nonsense, he returned good-humouredly. I am all right. Was Mrs. Baxter as mournful as usual? To which question Audrey returned a full explanatory answer. Michael listened with his usual interest, but he made few comments. Perhaps his mind was on other things, for when she had finished he said, somewhat irrelevantly, You are right, Audrey. Mrs. Blake is certainly a very pretty one. In a moment, Vineyard Cottage, Mr. O'Brien, and the mournful Priscilla vanished from Audrey's mind. Oh, Michael, have you really seen him? she asked, breathlessly. Well, I'm not sure, was the somewhat provoking answer. You were not there to introduce us, you know, and of course I could not swear to it that it was Mrs. Blake. Dear me, how slow you are, Michael, for he was speaking in a drawling manner. Why can't you tell me all about it in a sensible way? Because there is not much to tell, he returned calmly. I was just passing the grey cottage, when a lady in black came out of the gate. I was so close that I had to draw back to let her pass, and of course I just lifted my hat and she bowed and gave me the sweetest smile. It haunts me now, murmured Captain Burnett in a sort of audible aside. A lady in black coming out of the grey cottage? Of course it was Mrs. Blake, you foolish fellow. You think so? Rather sleepily. Well, perhaps you're right. I certainly heard a window open and a girl's voice calling out, Mama, will you come back a moment? You have forgotten your sunshade. And the lady in black said, Oh, how stupid of me, Molly. And then she whisked through the gate again. Did you stand still in the middle of the road to hear all this, Michael? No, my dear. There was something wrong with the lock of the schoolhouse gate. It is sometimes a little difficult. I must tell Sayers it wants oiling. Michael's face was inimitable as he made this remark. And so you saw her come out again? Oh, you deep good-for-nothing, Michael. I saw her come out again, and she had the sunshade. She walks well, Audrey, and she has a pretty graceful figure, and as for her face... Well, impatiently, I think I'll keep that to myself, he replied with a wicked smile. Do you fancy we could coax Cousin Emmeline to call soon? I begin to feel anxious to enlarge my stock of acquaintance, and you must allow that a bewitching widow is rather alluring, he paused. Michael, giving his arm a little jerk, a joke is a joke, but mind, I will not have you falling in love with Mrs. Blake. Dear me, what would Gage say? And at this Michael laughed, and Audrey laughed too, though just for the moment she did feel a wee bit uncomfortable, for even the notion of Michael falling in love with any woman was not quite pleasant. Really, Michael, we must walk faster, she said, recovering herself, or I shall not have time to dress for dinner. And then they both quickened their footsteps, and no more nonsense was talked about the fascinating Mrs. Blake. 